0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify get a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com work
1: shopify.com work you're listening to the economist asks i'm anne mckelvoy At glitzy gatherings from Davos and Aspen to spin-offs all across the world, former heads of state, Silicon Valley bosses and Hollywood A-listers champion philanthropy as a way to solve inequality and injustice. What philanthropy can do is... To try things, to
0: experiment, where you wouldn't want a government to experiment with your taxpayers' money. But it's up to philanthropy to take those experiments on, measure them, and if they work, then have government scale it up.
1: But scrutiny over how this money is spent and how much influence it buys is growing. And that's provoking questions over whether philanthropists' dollars might have been better used elsewhere or sacrificed earlier. My guest today argues that those in the top 1% of earners have little interest in social change when the status quo has served them so very well. Anand Giridharadas is the author of Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world, and he joined me at an Intelligence Squared event in London to debate the question, is it time to join the revolt against the rich?
0: First of all, I have a feeling, I, I have never taken a survey, but I have a feeling that girls in Africa are tired of being empowered by men in Davos. Um, <laughs> and, um, I think girls in Africa like have this figured out. I, I called this January while Davos was going on. I, I called for it to be, well, right before it went on, I called for it to be canceled. Uh, that did not happen. Um, I called for then this to be the last. We're not sure that that's going to happen. It probably won't, as you can imagine. And the reason I did was... Is this merely, I mean, I think nobody, maybe, not many people, would, would agree it's a bit of a spectacle. It's not doing maybe as much good as they pretend. But is it problematic or is it just yeah. kind of an irritating sideshow? That's an interesting question. And I think probably the default assumption we have is it's an irritating sideshow. They're going there to perform and they're not really necessarily doing the things they say they do. There are many sincere people there also. Let's not, you know, a lot of good human rights people and, and whatever go there because they raise money from the plutocrats. But I actually started to think that these things are actively problematic, and let me, let me explain why. If you are a very, very wealthy person who benefits from some of the policies I talked about earlier, austerity, low taxes, deregulation, um, not having competition enforcement, so you have one company for shopping, one company for search, one company for this and that. If you benefit from those policies, and you know there's a lot of public pressure out there in a lot of places to actually reverse those policies, question those policies, right? if you as a rich person just sit in your velvet robe in your English country house or your house in Greenwich, Connecticut, right? And just go on Twitter and make videos while smoking a cigar and drinking brandy Mm -hmm. about how you really think taxes should be kept low. I don't think your opinion is gonna help you, right? I think that's actually gonna backfire. I think people would raise your taxes as soon as they saw that video, right?
1: Yeah, you're not much of a loss to the PR industry on that one. Correct. So I think what it becomes very important to do
0: is first, as a plutocrat, acquire a respectability on social questions that gives you the authority when talking about your own interests to sound like someone who should be listened to. And that takes work. So what does that? Empowering Girls in Africa does that, right? Because suddenly the hedge fund manager on the panel in Davos is not a hedge fund manager on a panel in Davos. He is a man who cares about girls in Africa. That's now what you see when you see him because that's what he's been talking about for the last hour. Or, or Michael Dell sitting at Davos is not a guy who's just actually trying to shoot down one of the more interesting new tax proposals in the United States. He's a guy, he's a philanthropist. He's someone who's here to change the world. And as soon as they acquire the moral glow that simply the giving but also just being part of those Davos conversations, those Aspen conversations, that moral glow becomes very useful to them. And i talk to people in this world about it. They understand that. And it allows them, when they then go to the same senator or congressman who they were hanging out with in, in, Bahama, in the Bahamas or wherever else, and they say, so great to see you at that Empowering Africa girls thing. Um, hey, I want to talk to you about the carried interest tax loophole. Could you guys go easy on that? It's a much, much
1: easier conversation. Let me just take... The other side of this. Something comes out of the other end of it. And as much as you say girls in Africa might have had enough of being empowered by men at Davos or indeed by other well-meaning NGOs, all those who, who sort of profit from it being a bit of a fashionable cause. But actually girls do need to be educated in Africa and actually government's not very good at it. And actually you do have quite a lot of solutions, technology, and know-how locked up in these companies, which is part of the reason they got rich was tax rates, but part of the reason was they're quite smart at what they do, and you know that because you work for McKinsey, right, and you probably had to do a lot of analysis of, of what was going right with companies before you did what you think is going wrong. So the end product, if you say, I, I think this is awful, you're dressing yourself up in it, uh, and you have perhaps ulterior motives, is that nothing comes or less comes out of the tap at the other end. What do you say?
0: What I say is that this analysis relies on an accounting system that ignore, that ignore that only counts... The gestures of do-gooding that they do, and then they come home with those bracelets. (laughs) I mean, you can tell how rich a hedge fund manager is in New York by how many Africa bracelets. Watch on this hand, the Africa bracelet collection here. Real, like the billionaire hedge fund managers. There's about
1: 30 people sitting on their hands right now.
0: (laughs) It's okay, they're not hedge fund manager bracelets if you're not a hedge fund manager. Um, There's this whole issue with banks. Standard Charter was involved in a case, you know, enormous Western banks in this country, the United States, that wreak havoc on the countries those African girls live in through what they do with sovereign debt, through what they do with commodities trade, to any number of things, right? Sovereign debt's a particularly fascinating issue where it's really 0 sum. right? It's really preying on countries that have mismanaged their debt and and banks profit
1: hugely from it.
0: And so if then some of those same people or same networks Mm -hmm. of people are on the side of creating an economy that doesn't serve those people, or frankly tanking their own economy at home, which reduces the amount of foreign aid available for those countries. And then they turn around and they want to save a village. It's noble, but it's not the full story. And it's very hard to do the math on which is greater. But what a lot of what I'm trying to suggest in this book, whether it's this example or any number of others, is that the plutocrats in our time are fighting on both sides of a war on many, many issues. So yes, their hearts may bleed for why you know, for, for helping immigrants in this country against the backlash. I'm sure that's a cause many people donate to. Wonderful. But I'm not sure there would be the backlash against immigrants in this country if the economy had been working better for 50, 60, 70% of people over the last 30, 40 years. So that shift you all did to the dynamic scheduling system at your company, the decision to outsource, the decision to actually route
1: things through tax havens. Well, we're coming to the tax point tax where, where you, your list of alternatives is quite, there's quite a lot in there. It's a bit of a magic mix, it's quite a lot, I mean, one of the reasons immigrants come is because your economy is perceived as being productive and, and well-managed. Well,
0: it's better than where they come from, but it could work better for the people who are here, and it doesn't, and it often doesn't, because a lot of people want to make extra money. And I spent three years reporting on those people and understanding in great depth how they do it, which they, which they explained to me. I had people sitting there, you know, explaining to me on the record, all the philanthropic stuff— can we go off the record now? So here's the tax trusts that I've set up for my children. And I feel very bad about it, but I want to talk to you about it because it helps me to talk with you, right? Um, I have become the receptacle for the confessions of these people because, actually, many of them understand that they are standing on an indefensible mountain.
1: Well, that's actually what I was uh, about to ask you in terms of personal response, perhaps before we could uh, go a bit deep into some of the arguments and alternatives, is what kind of response did you get? Because it's spectacularly rude and very entertaining, your book in, in this way, if you like. If you like to see sort of elegant cream pies being flung in the face <laughs> of the rich and entitled, you you know, you've come to the right author. Um, I'm going to use what you just said as a blurb on the cover. There you go, I'll take that. I'll take that. We will take our fame where we can get it, right? Um, so. What then, then happens? And yet I, I see you've got interest from Bill Gates. Just tell us a bit about those conversations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Bill Gates shocked me by writing a blurb for this book, which I was shocked by. And then he shocked me a year later in Davos when he was asked about my book. He is insinuated that I was a communist. Um, so that was a significant shift uh, over, the course, <laughs> over the course of those four or five months. Um, or year. Um, look, you know, I think... To be totally honest, in the writing of this book, I walked a line that you, I think you probably think about in your columns and, and other writings where there's a certain level of pungency and ferocity where you may feel it, you may think it, you may have the evidence for it, but you'd lose people. And then there's a certain level of care and caution where you may have everybody listening to you, but you're not saying anything, and you gotta you gotta walk that line. And I, That's what the editing process is for there are a couple chapters entire chapters that didn't make it into here of my own choice because they were the payoff was meanness more than Substantive criticism of how this world works. And I, That wasn't what you I see was that
1: danger in this kind of argument indeed in polemic Full-stop and particularly in a time where people like to be a bit mean right?
0: Yes, but here's what I did that I think is different from a lot of polemic out there This is a polemic in which the microphone in this book is almost of the time, in the hands of the people I'm criticizing. It is there I went. I did what actually is very rare to do, frankly, in the Twitter age, which is when you disagree with someone, go to their house and ask them about it for 10 hours. Okay? So, yes, I have strong opinions. And, yes, I can be a little, you know, flip on Twitter. But the reality is I actually practice an ancient profession here where when you actually disagree with someone, you go listen to them for 10 hours. And so the reaction to the book afterward, I think, has reflected the way I went about reporting the book, which is, sure, there are some people who said this is terrible, and I can't engage with this, but actually, I have been shocked and humbled and, and actually wish that I would sometimes be as open as these people, people in this world who have used the book publicly, privately, to me, secondhand, I hear it through rumors and gossip, um, said, I'm going to use this book to look at my life again. I have people emailing me saying they've changed their profession. I don't know if that's real or not, but they say that they've done (laughs) it. I have 22-year-olds about to take this job offer or that job offer, and they say they changed their mind. So what I tried to do was intervene in a culture and intervene in a set of stories and have people just ask themselves harder questions, which sometimes might lead them in new ways.
1: And how much do you feel that you should be upfront about your own politics? You're on the progressivizing left end of the Democratic Party spectrum in a time of great turmoil in American politics. But some of the things, and we've heard a few of them already along on the way tonight, make certain assumptions that come from that position. So if you look at something like what's the role of the state, would you say, along with someone like Rudger Bregman, who has argued, I think in a slightly different way to you, but you're in the same territory of, of criticizing the elites, that the big missing question is tax. I mean, are you a high tax seller? Because I think we need to know a bit more about what your alternatives are to, before we could be sure that we want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, get rid of the philanthropists, and maybe find that maybe Bill Gates was right. And what do we take from your own politics? The
0: simple answer is yes. I mean, I, I think on taxes specifically, but, but, but we have to understand when it comes to taxes or any of these other issues, that the people calling for high taxes are not high taxers. Okay? They are people merely restoring normalcy after a 40-year war on government that happened in this country and happened in the United States and happened elsewhere. Okay, So when you are simply trying to undo an enormous ideological mistake, it is easy for the people who are living and dwelling and enjoying the mistake, believe in the mistake, to cast those ideas as radical.
1: So you mean that a period of high taxation after the Second World War when societies have been Reconstructed after the terrific shock material and otherwise lasted, is it, it the it norm, but that's in the 70s not in that the, longer in, a period really. It lasted in the
0: late '70s in the United States, and and the reality is that the U.S. didn't have an income tax until early in 20th century. So we don't, you know, we don't have as much history as you guys do. Um, but the reality is, the one percent. If you look at all the American indicators, everything was in a certain way until 1979, 1980, and suddenly. All the graphs change. Right? And it was the Reagan era, it was the Thatcher era over here. It was government is the problem. There's no such thing as society, only men and women. It's, it's also Democrats in the United States who end up kind of playing in Ronald Reagan's stadium even if on the other side of the field. You know, Bill Clinton, the era of big government is over. Barack Obama creates the first his first new office in the White House, the Office of Social Innovation, which declares on its website, top-down programs from Washington don't work anymore.
1: Kind of remarkable
0: that a But that's because there's quite
1: a lot of evidence that they weren't working as well as they but, but you, should have of, worked for, you, for many people in the population. Sure.
0: What I'm suggesting is a theory was put forward and it was attempted for the last 30, 40 years. And that theory was government is bad, regulation is bad, taxes are bad, business people are the best people. People who actually work in the public good are sort of leeches. Um, And the nice thing about this idea is we tried it. We've actually tried it for a long time. And I think to be honest about any era, you have to understand the trade-offs. I think it's been a great era for building businesses. I don't think any of us would say there haven't been enough great companies formed in our time. It's been a pretty great era for globalization, for world trade, for technological innovation. Innovation is just the Latin word for new shit. And, And there's been plenty of new shit in our time. Um, But progress is different from innovation. It actually means most people's lives getting better. And I think the era of extraordinary fertility and innovation has failed to be an era of, of progress for most people. And so the question then becomes, what are the systems and policies that allow so much profit, so much growth, so much technology, so much innovation to result in so little advancement in so many people's lives, so little mobility, etc. And I think the answer is this theory that essentially eviscerated the very idea of the common good. And what I am talking about is easily caricatured as, you know, I don't want the airlines to be run by the government. I don't want my phone to be made by the government. I don't want this water to be made by the government. I am just talking about the three or four or five or six biggest shared problems we have. Problems like, how do you empower... So hang on, you
1: don't, you don't trust the government to make these quite basic things, but you trust government to do really big problems. We and and that they do not a be great a bit job of, a of it all the time. Category shift. Give me an example.
0: The NHS. Do you understand what life would be like in this country without it?
1: Well, I, I don't think anyone... Anybody, anybody here wish just... they
0: didn't have the NHS? Raise your hand.
1: Does anyone here in the... We have 300 people in the on. room. Does anybody wish
0: yeah. they didn't have the NHS? So I would say that's a pretty good success.
1: Yeah, your, your, your target group your target group is in the room. Um, but if, if people want to reform, if the, I know, to, I'm going to challenge you on the argument, which is that the reforming state institutions with a great history and a great function in their societies is the tricky bit. It's, I think it's, the easy question is to say, do you like the this or the that? Did you find it worked always well for you, for your aunt last week, for your elderly mother? For when you... These are the harder questions, oh, but and that's on. where we come but, to who's going to drive a, the usage. I am an advocate for taxing
0: pray. rich people more, so whatever problems you might have had with that NHS may have more funding behind them. And I understand that not every problem with the NHS is a funding problem. And one of the arguments I make in the book and right in the final chapter is that we, it, this is not just about transferring more responsibility to government on our bigger shared problems. It's also about making government more worthy of that transfer and making government more effective. But part of that is we have created a culture that tells young people that if you want to make a difference, go make an app, go start a latte company, go start a cupcake company that gives five pence to people you know for every cupcake you buy. In, in, in my country, 50% of graduates of the top universities in the last 30 some years have gone to consulting and finance. That's not business. That's two incredibly small micro niches within the business world, okay? So, when you say, why doesn't the NHS work as well as it could? First of all, that group of people in the plutocracy have chosen very hard to fight for a set of tax policies and austerity that have favored them and hurt things like the NHS, first of all. Second of all, many of the best and brightest people, because of the cultural component of this, and this book is in many ways a book about culture, have participated in a culture that plutocrats spread and have an interest in, but you're right. We all breathe in and, and propagate that devalues the commons and venerates what is done privately, and that's a big problem. And, and so the question of why we all participate—I mean, I, I always say, you know, every time I come to Europe, and Britain's probably a little bit in between on this, but but even here, I just don't hear Mark Zuckerberg talked about. I mean, now it's kind of changed for him even in America. But up to two years ago, right, Mark Zuckerberg in America was like a guy who was gonna change the world. And you had some whiners, but basically right? <laughs> and I would come to Europe and it's like people in Europe didn't hate Mark Zuckerberg, but no one saw him that way. I think people in my experience saw him the way they saw like the guy who make those chairs. He makes his business with tax and he's fine. He's a guy trying to make money on chairs.
1: But isn't that a sign that, that the the retreat of exactly what you describe, the people did see through it, or indeed more than saw through it, to the extent to which you could say progressive elites had too much faith in the tech companies and the Zuckerbergs and the those who serve around the Sun King, and have kind of gone off it. I mean, if anything, they probably feel, a lot of us feel we kind of wised up. Yes. So we do seem to I, I, I to go on that journey ourselves. this 30,
0: 40-year we? era we've been talking about is coming to a crashing end. And I think it's going to be a long and bitter end, the hopeful side of me thinks that Brexit and Trump and things like that are symptoms. I mean, they're enormous symptoms that can feel like diseases outright, but I actually do think they're symptoms. I think they're symptoms of what happens when you take big, powerful countries and take the risk of allowing 60 or 70% of people in them to feel like those countries are run for somebody other than them, and then they start roaming around trying to figure out who they're run for, and that's when they get crazy in their analysis in many cases and start blaming things on Mexican rapists. But, but the first step of that intuition, which is that my society has a lot going on that's positive, but somehow my kid's education is not getting better. My healthcare is not getting better. The ability for me to reinvent myself after a job loss hasn't improved. That feeling that people have, that first feeling, is very, is very valid and is incredibly dangerous when this many people feel it. And what has upheld it to the point of the Mark Zuckerberg thing is that so many of us, and this is incredibly important, have participated in this culture. So it's not, I mean, you know, plutocrats alone are a very small number of people. What allows this culture to be powerful is that we all participate, sort of, in the idea that the Silicon Valley people are changing the world or that the people in the city of London who may have helped cause the financial crisis are also doing something 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 on Red Nose Day, or that ExxonMobil, despite having helped cause climate change, now is apparently a renewable company, according to an advertisement I recently saw. Um, and it's actually us who allows this to go on by, by believing in these stories that aren't true. And in many ways, I wrote the book to slay some of these phony stories.
1: You're a utilitarian a bit, I think, in some of your the way that you calculate things. and if in the end, they are still doing some good, regardless of the fact you might disagree with how they got their money and, and the system that they're working within. Why would it, for instance, be better for Bill Gates's malaria project not to be so well funded? First of all,
0: I in no way have ever suggested that the world would be better off if Bill Gates didn't fund malaria in poor countries. One of the arguments I make is that the case for philanthropy is strongest in places where public capacity is less and You couldn't say the way you might be able to say in this country that the government would be able to do this if it had the proper resources and capability. So I'm not against any of that. The the issue I raise, I I do believe, and this may be a surprising argument, you know, often the pushback I get is, what could be wrong with trying to do good? You know, isn't it better than buying a yacht? And the general answer to that is, yes, it's better than buying a yacht. Sort of obviously. However, I actually do think there's a minority of cases And I don't think Bill Gates is one of them. I think there's a minority of cases where the world actually would have been better off if certain rich people bought a yacht, right? And I'll explain. So Zuckerberg's actually a very good example where he's made, I don't know how much he's spent so far, but he's spent a modest amount so far and he's going to spend a lot more. But I would argue that given that British democracy itself and American democracy itself were compromised by his sort of amazing immunity from scrutiny, right? Parliament now, the Congress now, is only now after all these years starting to poke in to these folks. I mean, your former Deputy Prime Minister works for him. Um, the, to my mind, if you subtracted a lot of the moral and philanthropic glow that Zuckerberg had over the last 10 years from being a philanthropist, a world changer, and empower of people, if you subtracted that, my guess is British parliamentary inquiries, American congressional inquiries, journalists and others, would have been up that guy much faster, sooner, and harder. And then you say, if that scrutiny had come five years earlier, what would be the effect on the world? Maybe we would have had an uncompromised election. Would that have been worth more than the money he's given away?
1: I think actually maybe, yeah. You can't you can't idea. see into the future. You don't know and as much as you may think you know who you don't like, but you cannot really predict who is going to fall foul. You might be able to do it on a model like Facebook. It's much harder, isn't it, in areas of capitalism where you kind of can't absolutely see the balance of the good and ill is very questionable over time. And this
0: is why I actually don't believe the system of trying to figure out whether a billionaire has been naughty or nice and therefore whether they give money away is a good system. That's why I think the system is a system that should actually tax a lot more of their money on the way up, regulate things so workers actually have some stability in their lives and a decent paycheck. And they, you will have, if you do that, fewer billionaires, and we're all going to be okay. We will survive, actually. And, and then you'll still have some billionaires, the way they do in Norway and Sweden. The nice thing in Norway and Sweden is they still have their billionaires, but those billionaires don't have to fill massive societal gaps that they are complicit in keeping open.
1: They hide away. I'm going to really challenge you all that, because I think what happens in a lot of societies, particularly in Northern Europe, to an extent in Germany, is, you know, they're almost like, they almost knew you were going to write this book. You know, they, they hide away from it. There's something in the American psyching Capitalist who wants to come forward and says, like, hit me on the face with this one. I'm in the argument. And now, is written. A, it doesn't matter uh, if they a great hide book in those countries.
0: Because in my country, But you think that's you okay, Despite hours...
1: the fact that there's so much wealth, so much public wealth is still hidden away.
0: No. In fact, I advocate, one of my favorite things to do is to name, people always say, so what should people give to? And I have a list. And and the reality is, the, the things on my list are the kind of philanthropic giving that would be traitor to your class giving, the kind of giving that would actually help to break down the bad system you're standing on top of. If rich people want to prove their sincerity about changing the world, they shouldn't be absent on all the causes that would actually threaten their privilege but enhance the welfare of humanity.
1: Last question, I'm going to take you back up that mountain to Davos that we spoke about in the beginning, and you've got all the elites. Look at these elites in front of you. Look at how well-heeled they are. Oh. Uh, you, these elites saying, look, we hear what you say. Uh, we think we have had a lot of power given to us, probably too much wealth. And we want to, in that awful phrase, give back. But we don't want to do it in a, in a way that would you know, just won't get us anywhere. So. Give them a couple of pointers. What should our elites here in our pretend Davos gathering here in London do tonight?
0: Give in the spirit of FDR. Give in a way that actually puts your own privilege at risk. Give in ways that increase the odds that the bad system that allowed you to make your money will be broken down through your giving. Give in a way that actually makes it harder for anybody to ever again make as disproportionate to use a word Mackenzie Bezos used about her fortune, to make a disproportionate fortune. You know, she talked about, I have a disproportionate amount of money. Well, that's true. But I would hope that when she and others give, she's giving in ways that make it harder to make a disproportionate, which is the correct word, fortune next time. Uh, this is not a mystery. What, what, what a lot of people in at the very, very top of the mountain have tried to convince us is that this is hard, this is unknowable, we have no idea. But the reality is, the basic rudiments of a decent, dignified life for most people are not a crazy mystery. We know what achieves it. There's enough countries and enough variety to know, they do this and they get that outcome. They do a bunch of those things, they get that outcome. You guys are similar to us, but you have the NHS and you get way different outcomes on that score. And to just learn from each other a little bit. And not do crazy things that are rash, but actually build the kinds of systems that allow people to live with dignity and if you are at the very top I think what I would urge you to do whether you're willing to do that or not is to increase the odds that we change this system and we reform this system and not increase the odds that we that we delay doing so.
1: Anand Girardas thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think. What role should the super-rich have in bringing about lasting social change? Is Davos out of date? And if you found yourself high up in the 1%, what would you do to improve the lives of the other 99%? Write to us with your solutions, radio at or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, do subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.